Well, good evening, everyone, and welcome to New York Historical Society. I just want to let you know I don't usually wear my sunglasses in the auditorium, but I forgot my regular glasses today. And so we <laughs> I'm joined by our one of our historians as well. But I won't keep them on too long. I just wanted to see you. I can't see much without them. And uh, to welcome you and tell you it's wonderful to see everyone here again. OK. Um, we are, uh, we're, as always, we're thrilled to welcome you to our spectacular Robert H. Smith Auditorium. And I always like to tell everyone, if you don't have a brochure, I'm, I'm sure most of you are members. Do you want to just raise your hand if you're a member? I can see those arms even without my glasses on. Thank you, members, for coming. If you're not a member yet, we encourage you to join. It, the, your memberships help support the programs and all we do here at New York Historical. Tonight's program, Great Battles of the Civil War, Chattanooga, is part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speaker Series, the heart of our public programs. And as always, I'd like to thank Mr. Schwartz for all his support, which has enabled us to invite so many prominent authors and historians to New York Historical. I'd also like to recognize and thank trustees Suzanne Peck, Joel Pickett, Cy Sternberg, who, if they're not here yet, they had planned on coming. Uh, I see Cy here. Um, and all the chairmen's council members with us tonight for all their great work and support. The program lasts an hour. We'll have a, a question and answer session, and following that, a book signing in, uh, on the Central Park West side of our building. We're thrilled to welcome John Marzalek, the Giles Distinguished Professor of History Emeritus at Mississippi State University. He is the gentleman on your right. <laughs> We're thrilled to welcome him back to New York Historical Society. He's the executive director and managing editor of the Ulysses S. Grant Association. And Dr. Marsleck is the author of numerous acclaimed books and the 2015 recipient of the Distinguished Writing Award in Journal in the Journal, Memoirs, and Letters category of the Army Historical Foundation. In 2004, the Mississippi Historical Society presented him with the B.L.C. Wales Award for National Distinction in History. We are also so pleased to welcome Craig Simons, the gentleman in the center who had sunglasses on, <laughs> professor emeritus at the US Naval Academy, where he taught for more than 30 years and served as history department chair. He is the author or editor of many books, the recipient of the 2009 Lincoln Prize, and received the Commodore Dudley W. Knox Lifetime Achievement Award from the Naval Historian Foundation. Now, if you signed up for our program, you know that um, James McPherson was supposed to be here. He could not be here, here tonight. He's so sorry. But Craig, we thank you so much for coming in his place. We welcome you, and we're thrilled to have you with us. Our moderator for the evening is Harold Holzer. Mr. Holzer is the Jonathan F. Fanton Director of the Roosevelt House Public Policy Institute at Hunter College. The author or editor of many books, he is the recipient of the Gilder Lehrman Lincoln Prize and the 2016 Goldsmith Book Prize at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. In 2008, he was awarded the National Humanities Medal by President George Bush, and Mr. Holzer served three years as a Roger Hertog Fellow here at New York Historical. Before we begin, I'd like to ask that you turn off your cell phones, any beeper devices, and now, please join me in welcoming our guests. Thank you. I don't know about all of you, but I'm, I'm exhausted from the introduction. <laughs> <Yeah>. So <laughs> try to uh, apologize for all the name chairs and titles that were occupied. <laughs> it's good to be in the chairs at the New York Historical Society. We always love doing our Civil War programs here, and um, we're grateful to Dale and Alex and the team here for keeping these programs going, and of course to Louise Mirror, and um, we hope you'll keep coming because we have another series. This is the first in a new series of Civil War programs examining some of the lesser known 
battles and incidents. And um, tonight, Chattanooga, it may seem like a Johnny Mercer song or an obscure uh, place in Tennessee, but it has real impact and real importance uh, for those of us who have spent our lifetimes or a portion of it in the East. We know how Eastern-centric life can be, and coverage of the Civil War was much the same way. The West deserves a great deal more attention, and we could not have two better people to talk about it than Craig, who's written about the Western theater convincingly and memorably, and John, who is, um, as you know, editor of the Grant Association. And if Grant could march into Tennessee, um, John Marzalek could take the Grant Association to Mississippi. But that's a whole other story that you will hear about, uh, because that's where the Grant Association is, is located. So that's setting the table. And you see our title slide, which shows um, Chattanooga around the time of the battle we're going to discuss. Um, we, we start in, in 1863, a lot of attention, of course, focused on, on Gettysburg and uh, Vicksburg, which is important. I want to ask both of you, why, this, why is this particular city tactically or strategically important to the course of the war, or is it simply in one of those accidental places of conflict like Gettysburg? No, I think it's, it's not accidental. Um, actually, the question can be answered in a single word, and then I'll elaborate, and the single word is transportation. Uh, Chattanooga was a relatively new city uh, at the time of the Civil War. Uh, it was small still, uh, 2,500 population, 2,000 white population, according to the census of 1860. What made it important was its location. It sat on the, on the bank of the Tennessee River, which cuts through the Appalachian Mountains, so there's river transportation available. And for an army in the 19th century, the two most important ways, not that just to transport men, but more importantly to transport their supplies, their food, their ammunition, the sustenance that keeps them in the field, was either by river or by railroad. And in addition to the Tennessee River, there were critical railroads that met at Chattanooga. In fact, uh, in 1850, Atlanta, which was then called Terminus of all things, uh, that railroad first reached Chattanooga in 18, 1850. And then the East-West Railroad that started on the Atlantic coast in Charleston and ran all the way to Memphis on the Mississippi, really the only trunk line East-West Railroad in the Confederacy went right through Chattanooga. So that crossroads where that north-south road and that east-west road met and the river came through, that nexus of transportation opportunities was what made Chattanooga such an important military prize. So there's no accident about it. it what's amazing is how small, I wouldn't even call it a city, a town it was at the time that these events came together. John? Yeah, I think that's, that, that's very true. Uh, it's not a big place when you consider the, the Craig mentioned the size of Chattanooga. If you, if you look at Nashville at the same time, about 1860, that's about 40,000 people. So that's a much larger uh, place. But I think the location is, is, is crucial uh, at that time. But there's a couple other things, too, that we could mention. Uh, number one, the fact that by the time the Civil War came, Chattanooga was the third highest producing region in the country. Only New York and Pennsylvania uh, produced more iron at that, at that particular time than did, uh, than did Chattanooga. And then secondly, I think too, the other important thing is we talked, uh, Harold mentioned uh, Vicksburg and how we could argue that Vicksburg cut the Confederacy in a rather substantial way, almost in, in half with the, uh, with the Mississippi River. But the interesting thing is, is that Chattanooga, the capture of Chattanooga also sliced, because of the railroads, because of the river, sliced another part of the Confederacy uh, in, in half, uh, basically. And maybe more importantly, looking into the future, and we won't get into this now, but looking into the future, the capture of Chattanooga made possible uh, Sherman's Atlanta campaign, uh, where he uh, fought against some guy named Joseph E. Johnston that uh, uh, Craig allegedly knows something about. You're giving about. away the ending, John. 
You're giving away the ending of the story. Oh, I'm not giving. No, I'm just. I'm just saying that uh, that that it it did open the way for the for the uh, Atlantic campaign and the march to the sea. But I'm going to let Harold talk about how that all developed. Well, let's 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 stay chronological if we can. And <laughs> and I think actually we're not going to stay chronological because in a way you have to talk about Chickamauga before you talk about Chattanooga. And we have a James Walker painting for you to look at and. John, why don't you start this time and tell us what happened there, and then maybe Craig can pick up about why the yeah. army then moves on to Chattanooga. Yeah, if if you go to Chattanooga today, and uh, you are interested in the Civil War, you'll want to go to Chickamauga, which is just not that far away. So I've seen eight miles, I've seen fifteen miles. It depends where you're where you're actually coming from and where you're actually going. But Chickamauga was a very important place too. And what, what happened at, at uh, Chickamauga is that uh, a Union general named Rosecrans, William Rose Stark Rosecrans, uh, outmaneuvered uh, Bragg, the, the Confederate commander, to the point that he was in a good situation close to uh, 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 Chattanooga, but also ready to do whatever else needed to be done. And then a strange, strange thing, one of the accidents of war happened. The Union troops were lined up, as they should have been, but by mistake, by mistake, Rosecrans ordered one unit to move over, thinking there was a hole that had to be filled. Well, as it turned out, when that unit moved over, it created a hill. Uh, an opening, pardon me. And just by luck, Longstreet was beginning his attack on the Union line. And what does he find? This enormous gap and his troops pour through. And next thing you know, uh, the the Union troops are broken. They're running back toward uh, toward Chattanooga. And what happens after that, we'll, we'll talk about, but that at least gives you an over overview of what went on, Craig? Well, there are a couple things to be said about Chattanooga. Here's some trivia that you can use in a bar argument. The single bloodiest day of the war was at Antietam, where in a single day there were 24,000 casualties. The single bloodiest two days of the war was at Chickamauga. Uh, in November of, excuse me, in September of 1863, uh, the Union and Confederate armies fought in uh, forested terrain, very difficult uh, Visibility is horrible. The right hand can't see what the left hand is doing. There's ground fog, heavy forested, only a few roads, and they're very narrow, and they wind around, so there's a lot of confusion involved. And for two days, for 48 hours, these two armies slugged it out in this, this environment and produced 38,000 casualties. Uh, so the, the bloodiest two days of the war, the bloodiest three-day battle of the war, you all know, Gettysburg. But what's interesting is people remember Antietam and they remember Gettysburg. They often don't remember Chickamauga. And it was a horrendous confrontation. And one of the reasons the confusion that John mentioned about, is, is there a hole here? Shall I move these troops over and thereby create a hole in the line? Is because it's very difficult to figure out what's going on. Um, in fact, there were two young men, 21 years old, each of them, who were responsible in some ways for a lot of this they were not generals, they were not commanders. One was a private. And the reason they became important is they were the guys the generals gave messages to to take to another general to say, I want him to do X. Because there's no communication on the battlefield, there's no you know, radio, obviously, or telegraph, or semaphores because you can't see. So the generals made a decision. They wrote it out on a piece of paper. They gave it to some kid who went galloping off through the woods to deliver it to somebody else. And on faith, the recipient of that notice had to respond to it. And that's what happened to Thomas Wood, who was holding a position in the Union line. And he got this message. It said, you need to move immediately to your left. So he did. And that created the opportunity for the, uh, the, the break of the Union line. Um, this sounds like an organized confrontation. But keep in mind that much of it took place with people fighting without any idea of what was happening on their right or their left or their front or their rear, smoke, ground fog, trees, uncertainty, <clears throat> lots and lots and lots 
of casualties. So we've, we've been looking at Rosecrans here, and, and they're going to move on to Chattanooga. And here's another wonderful early picture of Chattanooga. Um, Braxton Bragg, whose picture I'll show you in a few moments, has 50,000 men. And um, he's here on the heights that you see in the background, uh, Missionary Ridge. Uh, it's an interesting place topographically. I actually got to visit it with John Marzalek. But as we approached, there had been a hurricane. Do you, I don't know if you remember this. And the trees were down, and we weren't able to get to the, which we blamed on you. But I think it's been a while. We've forgiven you. <laughs> yeah. But here you see the mountain in the background, which is visible. Um, and here's Bragg. So start and tell us who's in the defensive position, who's laying siege, and what is going on at the beginning of this uh, of this well, I'll start with Bragg because I guess we have his picture we have on the Bragg screen behind now. me. Braxton Bragg is probably, uh, arguably at least, the single most incompetent general of the Civil War. But what do you really think of Braxton Bragg? That's yeah, what what is, <laughs> horrendously unpopular. He, if this is the famous picture of him, he doesn't actually look too bad here, but everybody who ever met him said he was ugly. So there must have been something a, about repulsive him. Is a yeah. Repulsive is the word yeah. often used. Um, and his, his demeanor was much the same. And you say, well, how did this man become commander of an army? And one answer is that he got along well with Jefferson Davis. Uh, but he was a beleaguered commander. His own subordinates did not like him. He had laid out a plan at Chickamauga that he was sure was going to work. And he issued these messages through those couriers and went riding out through the trees. And nothing worked out the way it was supposed to. And he was furious. He blamed it not on the couriers, one of whom got lost and never found the guy to whom he was supposed to give the orders, Daniel Harvey Hill. He blamed Hill. I sent you an order that you were supposed to do this. You didn't move. You're under arrest. So Polk and Hill and a number of others of his subordinates, he cashiered and placed under arrest. Well, that's not really good for an army <laughs> when all your subordinate generals are in the Hooskow. So word of this gets to Jefferson Davis, and Davis tries to calm him down. He says, oh, General, you know, you really can't do this. I know maybe they didn't do what they were supposed to, but can't we let bygones be bygones? And the answer was, no, we cannot. I am going to prosecute these guys, and I'm going to make them pay. So while he's doing all of this, the federal army that he had just defeated, thanks in large part to this mistake of the gap in the line, is fleeing back toward Chattanooga. If he had concentrated on pursuit rather than revenge among his own uh, fellow officers, uh, he might have accomplished more. But by that time he got to Chattanooga, which he expected the Federals now to be evacuating, I mean, he beat them after all, but they weren't evacuating. They were digging in, they were fortifying. And so now he's not strong enough to fight his way in, they're not strong enough to fight their way out, and it becomes in effect, a siege, but a curious, a siege with an asterisk and a footnote. Uh, John, what am I talking about here? It's, the siege hey. doesn't go all the way around. Here. No, it doesn't. That's, that's exactly right. But before I get into that, I, I wanted to say something about Bragg. And some of you have heard this story before. Uh, and actually, the first time it's been discovered, uh, that it was discovered, was in Grant's memoirs. Uh, we've been doing some editing, and we haven't been able to find anything uh, before that time, but the story goes this way, that Bragg was a company commander in a pre-Civil War regiment. And uh, he was also the supply officer for that regiment. So as company commander, he sends a note to himself as supply officer saying, I need such and such and such and such. He, as supply officer, writes back to himself as company commander and says, no, you can't have that. <laughs> he then writes back again, and this is going back and forth, back and forth. Finally, Bragg becomes so frustrated, he goes to the, to the regimental commander and tells him this, to which the regimental commander says, my God, Bragg, you've argued with everybody in this regiment, and now you're arguing with yourself. <laughs> And so you do, you do have that, uh, have that problem. But to, to get back to, to what's the, the more, in, more important things that, that Craig was talking about, yeah, it's, it's a siege, but it's not a siege. 
because the, the, the Confederates do not really encircle the Union troops. They don't have enough people uh, to do this. And I, and I think, as, uh, as uh, Craig pointed out, uh, Bragg was so busy arguing with the people that he mentioned, but he's also arguing with Nathan Bedford Forrest. He's also arguing with James Longstreet, who Lee didn't want to send, but sent to, to the West anyway. So you have this situation, I think Craig put it right on perfectly, you've got a situation where Bragg, instead of worrying about his enemy is out in front of him, is worrying about his enemies inside his own army. And the result is a mess. And the result is, of course, that uh, Jefferson Davis shows up and says, guys, we got to do something here. we got to figure something out. Nothing is figured out. And so you have a Confederate army that is battling a Union army, which gets rid of Rosecrans and brings don't, don't, don't a jump ahead. Guy. Don't jump ahead. But let me, before we go any further, let me, we've mentioned Longstreet a couple of yeah, times here, yeah. and I want to make sure everybody understands how, what a curious yes. circumstance his presence created in the Confederate Army. Longstreet, of course, was associated with the Army of Northern Virginia, Lee's strong right arm, his old war horse. <clears throat> Longstreet had been with the Army in Virginia from Bull Run. He was, of course, a critical player in the Battle of Gettysburg. He knew he would never, ever get Army command as long as Robert E. Lee lived. So he lobbied to be sent to the Western Theater where he calculated he would be more likely to obtain Army command. He shows up the night before the Battle of Chickamauga began. His army came by train. He actually rides his horse off a boxcar right onto the battlefield, and it's his force that bursts through that hole in the line and wins the battle. So in his mind, he's the hero of Chickamauga. He has come from Virginia to save the day. He's Lee's strong right arm. Surely I should be the one to command this army. And that's one reason why he added his name to a petition mm -hmm. by Bragg's own commanders to remove him, ostensibly for his poor health. Oh, poor Bragg, he's not healthy. He should be <laughs> retired and somebody else put in his place. And I'm right here. So Longstreet's very presence in the Army of Tennessee is a destabilizing factor. So not only are they on these southern hills overlooking Chattanooga, unable to surround it, without enough force to fight their way in, arguing with themselves, but there's this tension between Bragg and Longstreet that's in the background of all of this. So on September 27th, Lincoln gets into the fray with an mm -hmm. interesting letter. And I'm, well, here's a picture of the terrain. Lincoln writes um, to, to Burnside, of all people. So we get General Burnside in there. You should save Rosecrans from being crushed out. Not exactly an order, but a plea. So we're looking at these heights here. Just describe what, what begins to happen. Um, as we, you were talking about the dump Rosecrans movement, here's Lincoln and Burnside. And of course, this gentleman arrives. So John, why don't you start with the arrival of your hero here? Well, Burnside is is very intriguing individual. You know, you're all familiar with the fact that uh, uh, that there we our term sideburns comes from his fancy uh, uh, facial uh, facial hair. But one of the things that that's going on that Lincoln is really worried about is that Burnside is now in uh, uh, Knoxville. Uh, where University of Tennessee is today, but he's got Knoxville, and it looks like, it sounds like, everything points to the fact that he's being surrounded because our friend Bragg sends uh, Longstreet away and says, you go take care of Knoxville, which is one of the big mistakes of this battle because he really, he really needed him. But the point is, is that Lincoln is worried that Somebody is going to, and Longstreet particularly, is going to take Knoxville away from Burnside. And keep in mind, the reason Lincoln is so worried, Tennessee as a state is divided between Unionists and, and Confederates. And East Tennessee, the area around Knoxville, is the Unionist area. And Lincoln has been dying throughout the war to get some Union troops in there to rescue those, uh, those Unionists, and it doesn't look like it's going to happen. So he's worried that 
Longstreet is going to Knoxville. At the same time, the fact that Bragg sends Longstreet to Knoxville means that, that Bragg is, is weaker in the area of Chattanooga. So there's a lot of confusion here, just like the terrain. There's a lot of confusion going on between these various in people. The command. And then Grant comes aboard, right? Yep. You want, Craig, you want to, to talk about that. Well, I, I'm going to let John talk about Grant, but I do want to mention about the terrain that uh, Chattanooga, uh, small as it was in 1863, sits down along the bank of the river. And all around it on both is this spectacular scenery. Lookout Mountain, if you've driven through the area, you've seen all the signs, see Lookout Mountain. There's a cog railroad you can take up to the top, and the, you supposedly can see seven states from there. But so Lookout Mountain is to the west of it, and then Missionary Ridge is to the south of it, and a couple of places called Tunnel Hill and Billy Goat Hill are, are to the east of it. And on this high ground are all these Confederate troops looking down on the Unionists, but north of the river, they don't have covered. So supplies are sneaking in, although only in drips and drabs. And one of the problems that Rosecrans is having is I'm having a hard time supplying my men in the city because I can only bring them in on, along these mule trails. I need to open a supply line or I'm gonna have to evacuate. Well, once you hear the word evacuate, Lincoln and others get very nervous and decide Rosecrans isn't gonna cut it. He doesn't have the stuff <coughs> to stay there in a famous line. There are lots of famous lines from Lincoln, but the one about Rosecrans is, he's walking around like a duck hit on the head, yeah. which is a very visual image. <laughs> of. So Rosecrans is relieved and Grant comes in. That's right. From where, John? Tell us where he was before he was assigned. Okay, well Grant actually, to back it up, Grant is actually just taken Vicksburg in July of 1863. What we're talking about is happening September, October, November of, uh, of uh, uh, 1863. So Grant is ordered to come to uh, Chattanooga. Sherman is also ordered to come to Chattanooga, but Sherman is ordered by Halleck to, as he moves in that direction, to repair the railroad. We're talking important to the railroad, but this really slows him down. But what happens is Grant shows up at Chattanooga, and as one of the soldiers says, when Grant shows up, things begin to happen. Things begin to happen. And so you have this situation where Grant comes, and keep in mind too, Grant has a minor problem. He's been down to New Orleans, and in New Orleans, a horse slipped and fell on top of his leg. He's in a in his hotel room. For That's a, a horse, H-O-R-S-E, right? What did I, what did I say? All good. I'm just, not, <laughs> just clarifying. Just thank you so much. Yes. <laughs> but whatever it is, lands on his on his leg, and uh, Grant is not able to is not able to walk. And he's in, a, he's in a hotel room for a week, just in terrible, terrible pain. He's got to come, he comes back to, to, uh, to uh, uh, Vicksburg and so on and so on. But the point is, is that to, for Grant to get into Chattanooga, he's got to ride this terrible road that, uh, that Craig talked about to the point that he's suffering because he's on a horse and his leg is absolutely killing him. It was so bad, in fact, that they had to lift him up and put him on his horse. And yet when he shows up in Chattanooga, people realize that something is happening that wasn't happening before. And one of the first things that happens is this supply route, right. the so-called cracker line. Cracker line. I'm just going to, we'll go right to that. Well, I, I, I think we should talk a little bit about the other replacement, George H. Thomas. Why don't we talk about him? Because he plays a, he's the rock of this battle, not to move forward. To George H. Thomas is an interesting guy. The rock of Chickamauga, you've heard the phrase. George H. Thomas is interesting in a couple of ways. He's a Virginian by birth who stayed loyal to the Union. But that also created a certain amount of suspicion among those who were willing to be suspicious that maybe his heart isn't fully in it. Nevertheless, he saves the Union Army at Chickamauga in that battle back in September when everybody else was fleeing because of this broken line. He holds firm on Snodgrass Hill, and it's his stand on Snodgrass Hill that allows the rest of the army to get away and fortify itself 
in Chattanooga. But for that stand, they would have fled, who knows, they'd be in Chicago. But uh, so, so that very much to his credit. But the other thing is that he was loyal to Rosecrans. He thought the way Rosecrans was cast aside and Grant brought in to replace him was absolutely not only uncharitable, downright disgraceful. And when Grant arrives, cold, freezing, leg wounded, muddy, splattered, he comes into to Thomas's headquarters because he's temporarily in command now that Rosecrans is gone. And Thomas is kind of abrupt with him. You know, he doesn't say, oh, General, I'm sorry, you need a blanket, you need you know, a hot toddy. I mean, none of that. There's a chair. So, I mean, and right away there was a, a tension that emerged between the two of them. And so instead of a cooperation emerging between Grant and Thomas, Grant relied more heavily on Sherman, whom he knew, whom he trusted, who was coming, repairing the railroad as he came, but nevertheless on his way. So Thomas is still there. But Grant is going to put his faith in Sherman to break out of this trap. Remember, they're still inside this city. The Confederates are still on the high ground. But Grant's determined now, we're going to break out of this, and I'm going to use Sherman to do it. So you've got, you're just, both of you were describing two general staffs that are at odds and a mess. So Indeed. that's an interesting thing to, to talk, to think through as we run through this long and very complicated story. It's not an easy one. That's why one of the reasons we have the visuals to walk us through. I just want to show one more personality who is John's and my favorite, um, and that's uh, General William F. Smith, who's known as Old Baldy. Um, I don't know why. I don't think I'll he... tell you. I'll tell you. I think he has a very nice cold. You ought to know. If anybody should know, problem. Harold, you ought, you ought to know that, and I should know it. Actually, there, he got this nickname Baldy at West Point, and the only reason he got it is he had a full head of hair, though. Well, you know, well, I won't call him any names, but he had a full <laughs> head of hair. And, uh, but there were so many Smiths at West Point, they had to come up with a right. nickname. So why not Ball? Well, he lost, he was losing hair. So yeah, that's, I mean, that's, and so he's a great engineer though. That's. Which is important in this. So let's, you, someone began to talk about the cracker line, about building the supply line as one of the early things that, that Grant initiates. So let's, let's talk about that for a moment. Okay. You, Craig, you start. Okay, the, the cracker line. This is the soldiers gave it that name. I mean, every army travels on its stomach. That's an old, old cliche, but it's absolutely <clears> true. <throat> if you can't supply your army with food and ammunition, you can't stay there. So Grant knew that his first job was to open the supply line. Now, to give Rosecrans credit, he had already made steps in this direction. He'd had some lumber uh, milled. He had some steamships, prefabricated steamships put together because to get the food into Chattanooga, you couldn't do it from the north. The roads were too bad. These roads that Grant rode on that made him so uncomfortable. They had to come by river, but then you couldn't go past uh, Point Lookout because the Confederates would shell it. So they had to come by river and then build a bridge across the river to the other side to get the food in. So it's a, it's a complicated engineering feat. Baldy Smith is a key person who gets this done, supposedly at Grant's direction, but Rosecrans had already been aware that this was necessary. But Grant puts a new sense of urgency into it, and it gets done early on, and he gets most of the credit for doing it, so this, this works to help enhance the reputation he's already built at Vicksburg and elsewhere to open up the supply line so the Confederates can stay in. That's job one. Now once that's solved, job two is to break out and drive those Confederates off that high ground. That's a harder job. Yeah, and, and I think you know that, that's an excellent point. And it's some, sometimes we don't think about this because logistics is boring. You know, how many, how are we going to, you know, feed this, and why are we going to do this? What about what about hay for the horses and all the rest? But one of the things about Grant and Sherman is they both understood the importance of logistics. If you consider what, what Grant and Sherman, with Sherman's cooperation and non-cooperation at Vicksburg, accomplished on the logistics side, and what he accomplishes here, that he understands that this cracker line is essential. That if, if you're, you know, the, the thing about uh, an army uh, goes on its uh, stomach, there's also an old army adage that an officer never eats until his enlisted men have eaten. And that's for good reason, because that is such an important thing to soldiers during the, during the Virginia campaign when the Union Army wasn't being fed 
the way they thought it should be fed, they started yelling, hardtack, 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 every time Grant showed up. Now, if you've ever eaten hardtack, that's pretty rough. But it was better than nothing, and they at least knew he could do that. So I think that's an important thing. That's one of the things that Grant gets going. The soldiers see, hey, something's going on here. And I might just add to what Harold uh, pointed out, uh, too, that the difference between the Union Army and the Confederate Army is that Grant has Sherman to talk to and to bank on, where Bragg has nobody. nobody. He, but he can always argue with himself. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Let me, that's true. Let me, by the way, just for the sake of the one or two people who might not know, hardtack uh, was the staple of soldiers because it, it could last forever. It's, it's essentially an unleavened piece of bread. It's about a half an inch to three quarters of an inch thick, about four inches by four inches square. Uh, it's, it's unleavened flour, uh, and it'll last forever. So these things are easy to ship. They come in big bags. And the older they are, the harder they are. You yep. break your teeth on those things. Soldiers actually use it to line the fireplaces of their winter quarters because yeah. it's so it's like tile. And that's what they meant by cracker. A cracker was a piece of hardtack. Right. So when we talk about the cracker line, that's the the means by which hardtack is brought into the city and other things as well, fatback and bacon and other things. So we have to move on because we're not going to be able to get to the battle. So okay. we, we have to. So here's this is a. I'm showing you an interesting print of, of Missionary Ridge, which they mistitled Mission Ridge. And it's interesting. This is an advertising print for McCormick Reapers. So at one point, <laughs> the battle was considered enough of a triumph to be an advertising symbol. So Grant orders Thomas to attack Missionary Ridge. And then he, he tell us about Thomas's reaction. I gather he's not too eager to do it. Well, I think it's I think it'd be, it'd be more complicated than that because... This is one of the great controversies of the of the Civil War. What did Grant really say, and what did he really want to see other, you know, his other generals do? Uh, it's clear, I think, if you read what Grant is saying, that he wants Sherman on the right flank to capture Tunnel Hill and get up, which means he'll be on top of Seminary Ridge, and then turn and just move right down the line. You notice that Hooker, who shows up because of Lincoln and because of Stanton, sending him by train and very, very quickly, his the, the his Stanton point, is the Secretary of War. Just yeah, Stanton is Secretary of War, right? And the idea is to, that that uh, Hooker is going to take the hill, and then he is going to turn and you know come this way. Now, what happens is, of course, is that Sherman when he attacks the Confederates, and it's some guy named Claiborne that's there, uh, who, who Craig has written a, a very good book about it. In fact, I think it's his best book, but who knows? But anyway, but, but the book is better than the general, but, but we won't 30 years that. ago. <laughs> Not that long. <laughs> but in any case, what happens is Sherman attacks, and he thinks he's gotten Tunnel Hill. Well, he doesn't realize, and this is amazing because Sherman's very good with geography, he doesn't realize that he hasn't captured Tunnel Hill. He's captured an intermediate hill called Billy Goat Hill. Imagine going through life saying, I captured Billy Goat Hill. But in any case, he doesn't get it. Then when he attacks the next morning, uh, Cleveland does a wonderful job of keeping him off. And so it's at that time that, that uh, 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 Grant says to, um, says to Thomas, you've got to attack. And the orders were, the way the thing was set up, the defense was set up, there was people on Seminary Ridge. Missionary. Uh, mission, but I, I'm, Seminary. Yeah, I'm talking about I'm another, another battle. Missionary Ridge. Uh, then about halfway or so down, there's another line of Confederates, and then there's some trenches very much down below. And the idea is that the, the Thomas's troops are to attack and capture that first line of trenches. But they find when they get there that they're sitting ducks, literally, for the fire that's coming off the ridge. And so they just automatically charge up the hill. They take the second line of trenches, and then the next thing you know, they're up on top of the hill, and they've driven the, the Confederates off. And look at this. This is significant high ground when you start 
going from hill to hill. hill. This is a real mountain at a certain it, point. It really, and it's sometimes called a miracle at Missionary Ridge. I yeah. mean, there's no, no question about this. But the point is, to the day he died, Grant insisted that it was Sherman who did what was necessary, that Sherman's fight on the flank withdrew people from the middle who went over to help Sherman, and that opened the way for Thomas, which brings us back to that point about yeah. the relationship. So now, now, yeah, and so here's another image of... Let me look at this yeah, one. Yeah, you need to look at this one. Oh, that's exactly how it happened. <laughs> um, this is what you call telescoping. Wait, let me just explain. The popular prints of the day, telescope, compress, their job is to show blue and gray, Confederate flags and Union flags, and give some approximation of terrain. And this is by a Chicago printmaker who manufactured 30 of these battle prints, really for the veterans of the action, so they could have a keepsake at which they could marvel. That's exactly how it happened, as you just, just like That's right. <laughs> Well, it, this long ridge line in the middle, this missionary ridge, is, uh, oh, it's 70 to 150 feet, depending on where you are. It undulates across the top. And there's a high piece of ground at each end. You mentioned Hooker on Lookout Mountain over here. He does his thing. But Grant's idea is that Sherman, the guy he trusts, is going to really do that by capturing this high ground, and then he'll roll up along the top of that ridge line, along the top of it, rolling it up like a hallway carpet. Not head-on, which would be very dangerous and very expensive in terms of blood and treasure, but from end to end. So Sherman is endowed with 30,000 men. He's got two, no, four divisions eventually. And Pat Claiborne, my guy, who's entrusted to defend Tunnel Hill. It's called Tunnel Hill, by the way, because the railroad actually runs underneath runs it. Under. So the railroads, the one up from the south and the one from the east, both converge there, and then they run through this tunnel uh, underneath the hill, and he's on top of this. So Sherman is approaching this, uh, and we talked about the uncertainty that was obvious at Chickamauga. There's a certain amount of uncertainty here, too, because those undulating hills, where do they stop, where do they end? When Sherman captures Billy Goat Hill, and by the way, let me just mention that as a veteran of the U.S. Naval oh. Academy, Billy Goats are pretty important. I just, <laughs> uh, no one should be embarrassed about capturing Billy Goat. We, but he takes this hill. Should we talk about football? We will time? not oh, talk okay. about <laughs> The last 14 years in a row we could have talked about it. Yeah, no, about no. it. <laughs> so Sherman takes this hill, and you know, Claiborne's men on, the act, on Tunnel Hill, the actual end of Missionary Ridge, hear all this cheering. They're throwing their hats in the air. They're so, because they think they've got they've the got end. Oh. And as they're going to roll up, they go, uh-oh, we're going down into this <laughs> deep swale. And then up again, there's another hill, and that's, that's where Claiborne is. And it's one of the remarkable unit defenses of a geographical position in the entire war. The other most famous one is Little Round Top yeah. at Gettysburg which is where Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain with a, well, really a reinforced regiment, regiment and a half, if you would, defends that position against superior forces for most of the afternoon. And it's important, but the reason it gets so much play is one, it's at Gettysburg, and two, Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain lived until 1914 and talked about it every single night of his life. Yeah. <laughs> but Tunnel Hill was at least as impressive as that with 4,000 men Pat Claiborne successfully defends the 30,000 men that Sherman threw at him, and they never did break through. He has successfully defended Tunnel Hill when word comes that, oh, you know what? Back there in the middle of the line, these guys that Thomas sent as a diversion that's supposed to help Sherman actually broke through, and the whole army's in retreat except for Claiborne who's yeah. still on Tunnel Hill. Yeah. So now he gets a message, a courier rides up, piece of paper. General Bragg says, defend the rear of the army while we get away. <laughs> and he does. And the army successfully gets away. If the Federals su successfully escaped from Chickamauga to get back to Chattanooga in September, now the Confederates successfully escape from Missionary Ridge to get back into Georgia before uh, Grant can, and Sherman, can uh, sweep up the winnings of their victory. But this, this is what breaks the siege and sends the Confederates fleeing south into Georgia. Let me see what we have. Ah, 
we have to talk a little bit about the battle above the clouds, about lookout. Oh, yeah. John, why don't you do a little bit on that before we see if anyone here has digested these incredible complexities and has questions for clarification <laughs> purposes. But here's yeah. one view of Lookout Mountain. Here's my favorite. This is a yeah. painting by James Walker <clears throat> uh, of the battle above the clouds. And tell us why it was called that and romanticized or not, and what happened? <laughs> yeah, this is just, just the back back into it, so to speak. Uh, this, this battle is interesting because there are several names that it gets. For example, the battle above the clouds and uh, the miracle at, uh, at uh, Missionary Ridge. Right. And it's one, cloudy in the morning. It is really, you it, can't even see the mountain. No, you can't. I mean, it, it is, it's very cloudy. It's foggy. Uh, and the, literally, in some places, you can't see the top, and you and the Union troops are coming up. And really, it's not much of a battle, because the the Confederates don't give much of a, a defense. Uh, it happens a lot easier than I think is going to happen. But I was just going to point out there's another name that we don't often uh, remember, but it was. Uh, it was one of the little battles at the beginning of the Chattanooga campaign uh, where the, the mules, remember the mules, charge the Confederates and drive the Confederates uh, out of the way. And uh, You thought this was going to get easier, right? Yeah, oh yeah. You know, just because I mentioned uh, Navy goats doesn't I mean had a, you I'm have getting to bring there. up that, that's right. Army mules. That's right. But does, I don't know if you're all familiar with the term brevet. To brevet somebody, you you raise somebody's rank uh, if they do something heroic. Well, the 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 story went around that uh, when these mules charged by themselves and drove the Confederates away, somebody suggested that what should happen is that the mules ought to be breveted as horses, <laughs> and so. So there's a lot of this, but but to get back to, we're not ignoring Harold. We're just doing just whatever, ruminating. whatever we want to do. A little just, bit out of control. We just talk, whatever. But anyway, uh, but the interesting thing is, is that that is one of those dramatic episodes that people talk about after the war is over, and it gets to be bigger and bigger and more interesting and more exciting than uh, than happened. And again, one of the and and Craig talk briefly about the round tops. One of the things that's fascinating is by virtue of terrain and personalities yep. and improbability and climate weather, this is a really interesting event. I mean, it is as, as interesting as Gettysburg, but it doesn't get doesn't the press. It does not well, get it, the it attention. Well, it did for a while. It's interesting. John had actually had a PhD student in Mississippi State who did a study of the founding of get, uh, Chickamauga uh, National Park, Battlefield Park, it's the first one. Yeah. Of all the parks that there are, you visit Shiloh and Gettysburg and Antietam and all these places, they're all now National Battlefield Park. The very first one ever established was Chickamauga in recognition of the fact of how important that was. Uh, and it is the largest of all the National Battlefield Parks still to this day. Uh, so it was at the time, I think the soldiers who fought in it recognized how important it was. John mentioned it was a gateway to the subsequent Atlanta campaign, which was decisive I know I am getting ahead now, and getting Lincoln reelected, which arguably was the most important turning point of the war. So all of that stemmed from the events that took place here. Sometimes historians refer to this as the Chick Chat campaign, Chickamauga Chattanooga. They are connected strategically. Besides, I just like saying Chick Chat. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and I think in the hundred years since it was founded, then we've lo lost sight yeah. a little bit of its importance. I mean, I but would not critical. disagree about its crucial importance at all. I would say that if Eastern newspapers are not only speaking to the largest audience, but also creating the news that's picked up in the West, right. you would have thought that this was right. not as extraordinarily important as it right. was for all the reasons you said clearly it was. But, but John, I'm going to skip the maps. Okay. I just want to show this extraordinary photograph. This is Ulysses S. Grant oh. surveying this area from, uh, this is the reality, cigar in mouth, looking at not very glamorous looking terrain. This is the way the military painter Thor de Thulstrup portrayed him with Granger and Thomas, I think, on Orchard Knob, 
it's impossible to begin describing Orchard. No, but he's watching the action. What do generals do during battles? They don't ride chargers and, and storm up the mountains themselves. They look through field glasses and point a lot and send messages. So briefly, because then we'll, go, we'll be able to take a few audience questions, summarize the importance. And now you can talk about the future all you want, about Sherman, about the march, <laughs> yes, here's the about last anything. <laughs> well, yeah. let me just, because this picture is on the screen, let me just point out, a lot of people have wondered where the terms Chickamauga and Chattanooga come from. They're Indian names, clearly. Uh, and there is some disagreement about it, but the most commonly referred, uh, accepted uh, origin is that uh, Chattanooga, that has nothing to do with trains making a choo-choo sound, uh, Chattanooga actually comes from a Creek word that means where the rocks come to a point. point yeah. mm. And there it is. Yeah. Right? yeah. So I'll mention that. But then I'll yeah. pass it to John. <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, good. Well, that's... Uh, no, I, I think, uh, I think the, uh, the... one I want to mention two things, actually. Uh, this question of Chattanooga and Chickamauga is, as Craig pointed out, is one battle under one control. What's interesting about, not only that it was the first thing, but what's interesting about it, there was a big debate in the National Park Service, or at that time in, in the War Department, uh, about how should these battlefields be preserved? Should you preserve everything? Or should you just preserve areas that will demonstrate somehow important things about the battle? And if you look at Chickamauga, that's kind of a traditional battlefield. It's been preserved as a traditional battlefield. If you look at Missionary Ridge, what you'll find there are a lot of houses, and every once in a while there's a small area that has been preserved, that is under, now under the control of the National Park Service, that allegedly tells you a lot about what's happening. Now, preservationists turn their noses on this idea of what was on Chattanooga. We've got to save everything. Now, can we or can we not? But you don't get much of a feel except the vision, the, the view. Vista is, the vista is impressive. That's the, that's yeah. the thing. Please, yeah. by the way, come. if any of you have questions, now's the time to, to take the mics. And we, while people are coming up down. to the question, I just want to note, if you do visit a missionary ridge, there is a road that runs right along the crest of it. There wasn't right. then, but there is now. And of course, real estate people being real estate people, uh, a lot of houses along that road with this beautiful vista out from their back porch. But right in front of them is where the Confederate positions were. Mm -hmm. And my favorite is a house that sits kind of in the middle of the line, about the target of Thomas's attack on missionary ridge. There's a big house with its front door, and about 12 feet in front of the door, front door is a cannon pointed right at the door. <laughs> yes, so that when you walk right. out in the morning to get your paper, ah, uh, there it is. Yeah, there, that's right, so, yes. All right, okay. <laughs> let's, let's start over here, please. I've always been a fan of George Thomas, and I know his relationship with uh, Grant didn't improve as the war went on. But by your description, he clearly was the hero of both of these battles, apparently. Uh, uh, certainly at Chickamauga, but he took the critical portion of... Uh, of Chattanooga too. What kind of a general was he? How would you rate him as a general? Well, I think I think you could you could rate him high as a general, and you could rate him low as a general. I think it would depend what you're talking about. He does some really marvelous things, but as as Craig pointed out, the fact that he still has family in Virginia hurts him a great deal. But it's also fair to note that his two biggest defenders, believe it or not. Uh, were Grant and Sherman. Those were the two who got him in the army in the first place. They, they said, hey, yeah, we got to have this guy. He's, he's a good soldier. We knew him from West Point. But they both, but Thomas drove both of them crazy because he was slow in moving. And he was, he was a great defensive general, mm -hmm. but he didn't like to go on the offense. And in many ways, he represents the old military in that he's got to have everything in order before he makes his move. Whereas Grant and Sherman were much more willing to say, okay, let's go and let's move forward. Thank you. I, I, I agree with that. I'm a big fan of, of George Thomas. I think not only was he, was he very almost pedantic in terms of making sure he had everything ready to go before he struck, but he had a kind of a, a doer demeanor as well. He wasn't the kind of general that 
uh, soldiers threw their hats for, mm -hmm. uh, as McClellan was, for example. McClellan had to have everything just right, too. But he also had something about his personality that led soldiers to, to cheer for him, and, and Thomas didn't have that. I would just add that as much as he was restrained in his um, maybe promotions or whatever because of his Virginia antecedents, I think he was also an important symbol of loyalty coming yeah, out of Virginia. that's very true. As a few were. Yeah. Yes. Good evening. <clears throat> Good evening, and thank you again, gentlemen. Um, I have a rather simplistic question about General Grant. What was there about him that meant that he could get it done? That he could get How it. could Grant get it done? How did Grant get it done? That is an excellent, excellent question, because when most people met Grant, and who hadn't met him before, said, this is, this is the guy that's done all these things? I mean, you know, Lincoln certainly was, had never met him before, and you, you can run. But the thing about Grant, I think, more than anything else, the thing about Grant that made him a success was he wasn't flashy. They didn't, soldiers wouldn't throw their hats in the air for him either. But he was a, an incredibly determined individual. Uh, my, one of my favorite stories about him is, is in his memoirs, again, where he talks about the fact that he's going to go visit his future wife, Julia, uh, before he goes into the Mexican War. And he hits this stream that normally is nothing. It's dry. And now it's a raging torrent. He jumps in with his horse, swims across, says goodbye to where we'll get married when I get back, et cetera, et cetera. And he says, you know, I've always had a superstition. Once I began something, I would always complete it. And I think that's really the reason why he's so successful as he is. Go ahead. I, I want to say this about Grant, uh, and that is that he has a reputation largely because of the campaign in Virginia in 1864. Maybe that's another future conversation. I don't know. That he was something of a fullback. You know, he'd pull it. I don't want to talk about football. No, football, football no. But he'd put on that helmet and bam, bam, bam into the line. And that that's what made him great. And he did have that determination about him. I agree that that's all true. But I want to say one more thing about him, and that is his ability to focus and his clarity of mind. He wrote the best memoirs of any general, any survivor of that war. And if you look at the original manuscript, there's hardly a cross out or a correction. And he wrote that from his mind to his pen onto that paper at a time when he was dying of throat cancer. And it's brilliant. And I wanted to mention that in particular because next year, a new annotated edition of Grant's memoirs no will kidding. be out, edited by John Marsden. No kidding, I didn't know that. <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you. Worth saying, too, that he wrote the clearest battlefield instructions. Yes, yes, yes he did. Yes. Um, Lincoln gave Grant the option to relieve uh, Rosencrantz, and he did. And uh, I happened to read online this morning that one of the reasons he relieved them is because he really disliked them. Is that true? And if so, do you know why? That Lincoln disliked Rosecrans? No, that Grant disliked Rosencrantz. Oh, oh. Rosecrans, yeah. Rosecrans, yeah. Yeah, well, that, there's some truth to it. He, he doesn't think that Rosecrans did a particularly good job at the Battle of Iuka uh, in, in my, my home state of Mississippi, that he didn't, he didn't do what he ought to have done. Sherman disliked Rosecrans enormously, too. And there it was because Rosecrans had been in California with Sherman and used to visit the Shermans And when, uh, when Mrs. Sherman was there. Well, Rosecrans was, as the old expression goes, more Catholic than the Pope. And so was Ellen Sherman. And so they did a lot of talking about Catholicism and theology and all the rest. <laughs> And Sherman, it drove Sherman nuts. <laughs> true. All right, I think we're going to have to really move it because we have a hard stop in the auditorium. So, yes, I have very just, fast answer for this one. I have just an interesting anecdote. My husband is from Chattanooga, and he grew up on Missionary Ridge. Huh? One of those houses that was an incredible um, Actually, he lived about 100 yards from the big house with the cannon in front. Oh. And he... One of the first things he told me was, as a boy, that he thought everybody had, had Civil War cannon in their front yard. <laughs> That's good. He's John also, does. He's, I'm he's also taken me up to Park Point, with that lovely, lovely view. And um, it's really pretty amazing. Anyway, I thought I'd share that. That's a great story. You. That's, you know, that's terrific. I'm going to end the way I always do, which is with, with Lincoln. 
right after the battle, he was invited to Cooper Union to give a speech about the war effort and recruitment. And he didn't go. It's, he did not want to replicate his Cooper Union experience. But he had a wonderful line that perhaps was directed, again, at his recent experience visiting the Gettysburg battlefield and speaking immortally there, um, perhaps thinking of the chick chat campaigns that had ended so well and given him new confidence. He said, honor to the soldier and sailor everywhere who bravely bears his country's cause, who braves for the common good, the storms of heaven and the storms of battle. I think Lincoln knew where these battles were really won and lost. And that's something that he understood, and I think we still understand. So thank you all very much, and thanks for praising him. Thank you so much, Harold Holzer, um, Craig Simons, John Marzalek. What a team. This is great. They will be back. We have several more, three more programs, I think, coming up in the spring. So pick up your brochure if you don't have it. Harold Holzer will be back on uh, February 11th. I think it's on page 21 in our, in our brochure. Uh, the Legacy of Reconstruction, it'll be another great program with David Blight, Edna Green Medford, and Eric Foner. Um, we've had them before, it's really a part two, it's wonderful. And um, tomorrow night, if you're not busy, we have another terrific program. You just might as well come back every night. Um, we're doing Hamilton's Best Friend with Rick Brookheiser. I will be asking him lots of questions, and we're going to do a program, um, interesting story about, I don't know if anyone knows who his best friend was, but come find out. So thank you again, and thank you all for coming. Stay for the book signing, and our, our museum store is, was renovated. It's now newly open on our 77th Street side. Pick up your books there. See you tomorrow night. Okay, thank you.